Peter chapter 1, verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the privilege to be in church, to worship you. You are worthy of the best we have to offer. We pray now for this part of the service as we look into your word that our hearts and minds will be opened by your spirit to hear and understand and receive what you want to say to us. We pray that you will work out all of the purposes of your goodwill in our lives and we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When there is a birth, the next thing you look for is growth. Um, Peter begins his letter by talking about being born again, born again to a living hope, uh, born again to a lasting inheritance, born again to a loving protection. And from there, he continues on. And in this passage, he comes to a point uh, of speaking about what seems to be the goal of growing up after being born again. Um, I don't know if you remember what you said when you were a child and people would ask you, what did you want to be when you grew up? Um, I, I don't, I'm not sure I remember what I said. I do remember what one of my kids said, though, and uh, I don't know. This, this apparently is a poor reflection on me, but um, one occasion someone asked my oldest son when he grew up, did he want to be a preacher like his dad? And he said, no, I like to work. I had a friend that I grew up with who said when he was a boy that he wanted to be a garbage man when he grew up. He said there was something about that truck that, you know, you put the garbage in and it would eat the garbage and that was just really appealing to him. Kids these days don't know uh, about Toys R Us, but I remember... Toys R Us are not around like they used to be, and their, their catchphrase or their jingle, you, you may remember, said, I don't want to grow up. I'm a Toys R Us kid. 
for children, for very young people, often the goal of growing up seems to include the, the freedom, the ability, uh, the privilege uh, of simply doing what they want to do, right? Um, I read this. I, I don't know anything about this. It's a, apparently a musical, maybe a, maybe a Broadway show. I don't know. But there, a song from this musical called Matilda uh, has lyrics that go like this. And when I grow up, I will eat sweets every day on the way to work. And I will go to bed late every night. And I will wake up when the sun comes up. And I will watch cartoons until my eyes go square. And I won't care because I'll be all grown up when I grow up. And when I grow up, I will have treats every day. And I'll play with things that mum pretends that mums don't think are fun. Perspective. You know, children tend to see growing up, the goal of growing up, they, they tend to see all of the privileges without the responsibility. When I grow up, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. When I grow up, I'm not going to do this, that, or the other. But, you know, what we hear in, in culture societal living, the, the society that we live in, uh, we hear things about reaching your potential, you know, when you, when you grow up. You can, you can be whatever you want to be. You know, live unto your potential. Fulfill all of your potential. And uh, if you know anything about God and His Word, you know that it's, it's not necessarily accurate that we can be anything we want to be, even that we want to be, that we ought to be anything we want to be. Um, there are some things that we simply ought not to want. That made sense to me, but my brain is a little foggy. Did you hear that right? Did that make sense to you? There are some things that we ought not to want. Um, Potential, the, the adjective definition for potential is having or showing the capacity to become or to develop into something in the future. Having or showing the capacity to become or develop into something in the future. As a noun, potential means latent qualities or abilities that may be developed and lead to future success or usefulness qualities or abilities that are within us yet to be developed, but that may later lead to success and usefulness, potential. So growing up for the Christian, the one who has been born again, is not about coming into this place of freedom where we can do whatever we want to do, neither is it about living up to what society expects or what society tells us that, oh, you can, you can do anything uh, you want to do, you can be anything you want to be, you know, reach for your dreams and all of that. 
No, it is about becoming everything that we are intended to be, everything that God intends for us to be. And for the Christian, primarily, that means holiness, holiness. Peter quotes here and says that we are to be holy in all our conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So the question is, what is it that makes us want to engage the, the, the cycle or to, to put forth the effort? What is the motivation for being holy? You know, for the child that wants to grow up, they see the privileges of being grown up. You know, when you're a young teenager, you can't wait until you're old enough to drive. At least that's the way it was when I was a young teenager. Um, you, you just, you know, you kind of just live for the next thing. <clears throat> and it's not until you get older that you realize how good you had it and how easy life was. <laughs> As young Christians, what is the motivating factor for us? And this is what I want to talk to you about for a few moments this morning the motivation for the Christian to be holy, to pursue holiness, is this. One, God our Father is holy. God our Father is holy. Peter here quoting, I believe, a passage from Deuteronomy, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You see, we are created as reflections. If you go back to the very first page of your Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27, there you will find the, the explanation of the creation of humanity, where God speaks to Himself, amongst Himself. Are you with me? God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So God speaks to Himself, amongst Himself, and says, let us Make man in our own image. And God created man in his own image. And part of that image is a reflection of the holiness of God. I'm not going to take a lot of time this morning to talk to you specifically about what holiness means. We'll get into that perhaps in future weeks. But one of the things that we know about holiness is that it is a sense of otherness or uniqueness. And out of all of the creation that God made, mankind alone, humanity alone, is made in God's image. Now, sadly, we know as we read in Genesis chapter 3 that Humanity, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God's command, and because of their disobedience, sin came into the world and into their lives, and the, the ground was cursed because of sin, and humanity was cursed because of sin, and that image, the divine image upon our lives, was damaged. However, it was not completely destroyed. In every single one of us, we still bear the fingerprints of God. And since 
the fall of man, God has been working a redemptive plan to restore the image of God in us. Romans chapter 5, verse 18, we read these words, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank God that He is at work in our lives to do more with the sin that is in this world and in us, to do more with it than just forgive our sin but to cleanse our hearts and to restore the image of the divine in us. You may have heard the story of the little boy that was sitting with uh, paper and crayons and pencil, and he was drawing feverishly, and, and uh, someone walked nearby and saw him and, and said, What are you drawing there, Sonny? And he said, I'm drawing God. And mom or dad, whoever it was, was talking, said, well, I, I didn't know anyone knew what he looked like. And the little boy said, well, they will when I'm through. And friends, that's what God says to the world through you and I as born-again believers. Part of our motivation for pursuing holiness ought to be this understanding that our Father is holy and He desires holiness in His children as reflections of His character to a world that so desperately needs to see Him. And when they question about God and who God is and what He looks like and His character and His attributes and they say things like, I don't know anybody knew what God looked like. And God wants to say about each one of you that they will when I'm through with you. When I have formed my character in you, then the world will be able to look at you and see me in you. We pursue holiness because God, our Father, is holy. Also, we pursue holiness because God, our Father, judges justly. He judges justly, that is, without partiality. Verse 17 says, If you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Do you realize that salvation does not remove responsibility? Let me tell you what I mean by that. If you've been around here for very long, you may have heard me say something like this, that for many people, salvation, being born again, is nothing more than a transactional relationship. Someone 
may kneel at an altar or say a prayer and then they get up from that place of prayer and move on as if they have their ticket to heaven punched and they're good to go and they go off the rest of their, their, their way and simply live life as they want to. As if now they have a kind of a blank check. But friends, salvation does not remove our responsibility. If you go back to Romans uh, chapter 5 and and chapter 6, I read to you a little bit at the end of chapter 5 of Romans a few moments ago where Paul said, uh, where he spoke about uh, where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. Then in chapter 6 verse 1 he says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And there were people in Paul's day that believed this. They were called antinomians, uh, which means against law. And and the idea is if if sin uh, causes the grace of God to be made much of and and, and that just multiplies grace and, and it can all be forgiven, then let's just sin... Let it go, you know, enjoy life, and, and God's grace will cover all of that sin. And there seem to be still people these days that want to try to live their lives that way. However, salvation does not remove the responsibility from the Christian to try to live as God would have us to live. In Romans 6, 1 He asks the question, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And he says in verse 2, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? In other words, we are to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive unto God. And as unrealistic as it may seem to so many people, We need to get it out of our heads that that it's unrealistic that we should try to live without sin. You know, people so often seem to think, well, you know, who who can live without sin? That's just a totally unrealistic expectation. The Bible doesn't seem to think so. The Bible teaches us very clearly that it is a a very realistic expectation for the person who has been born again to live a life of victory over willful sin. God is able to work in our hearts and in our lives to give us, first of all, a desire to live in victory, a desire to be pleasing in His sight. And if He is a God who can work to give us a desire, He's not going to give us a desire for something that He doesn't also enable us to, to, uh, to reach, not through our own strength or through our own power or ability, but through His divine power. There is a relational responsibility God is our Father. If you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And I'm not sure what kind of father figure you had in your life. 
Because a lot of the ways that you understand these kinds of verses will depend on the father figure that you had. If you had a father figure who was a very strict, authoritative type person and you could never be good enough, you could never do enough to please uh, or, or to, to satisfy, then you will, you will tend to see God as a father figure that you can never please or do enough to satisfy. Yet, on the other hand, if you understand the Father, the Heavenly Father, and, and that tends to be, let me back up, that tends to be just the way it naturally works. The, the Father that we had tends to inform our understanding of our Heavenly Father. Can I just ask you, if you had a father figure who did not represent our Heavenly Father well, then go, go to His Word and learn what He is really like. The, the most beautiful picture that I know of, yes, he is, he is a Father who judges justly. He is a Father who judges impartially. Yet He is also the, the Father like the one in the story of the prodigal son who when the prodigal son wanted to go out and waste his, his uh, inheritance in riotous living, yet apparently that father made it a habit to look off in the distance on a regular basis for the time when that son might come home. And though he is a father who does right and will always do right, no one will sin and get by with it. He will not excuse our sin, yet at the same time, he is a father who is loving and kind and merciful and long-suffering and stands with wide open arms waiting to receive that one who is longing to come back home. That's the kind of father that makes me want to say, oh, I want to please you. I want to please, I want to, oh God, he's, he's been so merciful, so faithful, so kind and long-suffering to me when I did not deserve it, when he could have justly cast me aside Yet he instead reminded me of his love and let me know that there was a welcome waiting for me whenever I was ready to come back home. And I say, oh God, would you help me to live a life that's pleasing in your sight? We have a relational responsibility. We have the responsibility of reverential respect. Reverential respect. Peter says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And when he says fear, that's, that's exactly what he means, reverential respect. He's not, he's not talking about the fear of a scolded dog. You know what a scolded dog looks like? One that's used to being beat up and, you know, kind of tail tucked beneath, between its legs and ears back and just kind of... That's, that's not what he's talking about. 
he's talking about the, the respect that is due to an authority figure. If I can quote to you from Roy Nicholson in Beacon Commentary on this passage, he says this, The holiness of God creates reverential awe in all true believers. He is not only our Father, but also our Judge. His holiness guarantees that His mercy shall not become an indulgence or His justice a tyranny. All sin is infinitely offensive to God, who from His holiness hates sin, but from His goodness inclines to rescue man from sin. By His wisdom understands how salvation from sin may be accomplished, and by His power is able to achieve it. Praise God. We pursue holiness because God our Father judges justly. I'm going to skip that illustration. Finally, God our Father redeemed us. God our Father redeemed us. Why should we want to be holy? Well, we should want to be holy because we ought to have a desire to reflect the character of our Father in whose image we are made. We should want to be holy because uh, of, uh, of the reverential respect, the relationship we have with our Father. And finally, we should want to be holy because of the price that our Heavenly Father has paid for us. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul reminds us that you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. And friends, there are some things that we have no right to even think about. To think that we could accept the price that God has paid claim the name of Jesus Christ, and then try to go out and live a life that reflects our own self-centered desires ought to be just beyond comprehension. We don't have any right to consider such a thing. We don't have any right to consider that uh, we could fulfill the sinful desires of the flesh or even Say, God, I, I want my way instead of your way. It's, it's just, it should be beyond our comprehension. At the end of it all, the reason we pray, the reason we worship, the reason we give our lives to Christ, the reason we pursue holiness is that He is worthy he is worthy. He has purchased us. We don't belong to ourselves. Back in the early 1700s, Protestant refugees from the Catholic country of Moravia came to Germany and settled on the land of Count Zinzendorf. What became known as the community of Moravians in those early days was 
was marked by division and disagreement and strife. At that time, Count Zinzendorf was a young 27-year-old man, and he began to pray and cry out to God for reconciliation and revival. Days later, on August 13, 1727, a wave of repentance and revival swept through that community, and the Holy Spirit was dramatically poured out on the people there with supernatural love for each other and a love for the Scriptures, and most supremely, a love for Jesus Christ. His glory became their urgent desire. That community of Moravians adopted a radical new model for community life, which included, among other things, a perpetual corporate prayer meeting. Now, this is hard to believe when we read about it in history, but it's true. It's something that actually happened. The people of that community committed to hourly prayer watches they had each number of people had they had their hour to pray for 24 hours a day seven days a week and as a result of this revival and this commitment and this desire to please and glorify Jesus they had a 24 hour uh, a day seven day a week prayer Vigil that lasted for over 100 years. In fact, if you trace our history as Wesleyans, this is where our Wesleyan history goes back to. Because John Wesley, you remember, was with the Moravians on the ship uh, coming over. To, he was coming over to try to be a missionary to the heathen. In, in America. And as they were coming through a storm and he saw the, the, the Moravians there, everybody else was just afraid for their lives, including John Wesley. And he saw the Moravians there and how they were in, at such peace and just simply praying and singing together. He, he was convicted because he knew he didn't have what they had. And at one point in his journal, he had written something like this. He said, I had come to America to save the heathens, but who, oh, who will save me? And God used the ministry and the witness of those Moravians to bring John Wesley to an understanding. But that's, that's a different story. What I wanted to tell you about was the first two of the first missionaries that came out of this group of people uh, in 1732, about five years after the initial outpouring of the Spirit, two Moravian tradesmen, 36-year-old David Nitschmann and 26-year-old Johann Leonard Dober. I'm sure I'm not saying those names right. But at any rate, these two became the first missionaries to leave the Moravian community, and they had heard of the plight of African slaves on the island of St. Thomas in the Caribbean and how there was a spiritual hunger there but no one to share the gospel with them. And in fact, uh, I'm not sure how accurate the accounts are, but what I had been told was that the people that were overseers there had determined that there was not to be any Christian witness or influence on the island of St. Thomas. 
They had decided that if any were shipwrecked there, that they were going to isolate them by themselves and not allow them to interact with any of the others so that they would not be able to spread the Christian message, the message of the gospel. These two men with a burden on their hearts for these people of the island of St. Thomas had determined to go there and they were told they... They couldn't. There wasn't any way they could go. And they said they would go by any means necessary, even if they had to sell themselves into slavery in order to minister among the slaves. As it turned out, when they offered themselves as slaves in Copenhagen, they were laughed at because they said no no one would buy white men as slaves. So they traveled to St. Thomas simply by working their trades. One was a carpenter, I think, and the other I'm not sure. But according to the story, now they did survive into older age and continued to have ministry. But as young men, as they left their homes and their families and they were aboard ship getting ready to leave. And as far as they knew, seeing their loved ones for the very last time, one of those men raised a fist and said, May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his sufferings. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his sufferings. And it was that motivation that drove them to go and minister to people in a place that as far as they knew it would mean their lives. And friends, we are called, and most of us, will, <clears throat> most of us will, will not ever be called farther than across the street or to the next door neighbor. You realize that? You are called, we're all called, but most of us will never be called to go across an ocean. But you will be called to go across the street or to your next door neighbor. But more than anything, we are called to Holiness. And to exemplify the life of holiness, the, the image of God worked out in us so that the world can see the character of God, the attributes of God through us. And no, we're not able to do it in our own strength. We're not able to do it simply by lifting ourselves up by our bootstraps, but by making ourselves available and saying, God, here am I. You can do with me what you will. And God, through the power of His Spirit, can form Christ in us so that the world can see Jesus. We do it, friends, because God, our Father, has created us in His image. And we are moved because He is our Father. We should desire to obey Him. And because He redeemed us with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand together, please.